Make this your rallying cry. Please tell Republicans all over the country they're going to take away their weapons and repeal the Second Amendment. Do it. I dare you. Welcome to What's Left from BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm your host, Sarah Leonard in New York City. The conversation surrounding guns in this country follows a familiar pattern. A mass shooting occurs in a school. Liberals call for stricter gun control measures. The right and the National Rifle Association fight back, citing the Second Amendment. But this dynamic leaves out perspectives that fall outside of the basic liberal versus conservative framing. Today, we are complicating the debate by talking with reporter Jane Koston about the racist history of gun control. Within the white supremacist or white nationalist movement, there very much is a sense that, no, 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 there should be gun control, but only for black people. And with Jason Christian, who reflects on his former membership in a left-wing gun group. If the state decides to declare martial law, you're gonna have to have like safe places to go. Let's get started. Jane Koston is a senior politics reporter at Vox who covers the American right. She has written about the racist history of gun control measures and joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. You've written this article about the really, really racist history of gun control in America. Right. How far back does this go and what do you mean by that? Uh, Well, it goes back to before the Constitution was written. Colonial law in, say, South Carolina or Florida or in other states was so bent on preventing Black people, namely slaves, however, also freed slaves, from owning weapons of any kind. I wrote my piece that in Florida, white citizens patrols of sorts would search the homes of free African-Americans for guns and ammunition. And there, there very much was a sensibility even before the country's founding that the ballot box, like the right to free assembly, marriage, gun access was for white Americans only. So in your piece, you actually talk about Ida B. Wells and right. how she encouraged people to actually have guns in their households. Yes. Um, Ida B. Wells, civil rights activist, African-American journalist in the 1890s, is living at a time in which in 1892 alone, 161 African-Americans were lynched across the country. And when I say lynched, I don't mean just hung. In Paris, Texas at that time, a man was burned to death in front of 10,000 people. And self-defense was a real and absolute necessity. And Ida B. Wells wrote in a pamphlet entitled Southern Whores, the lesson this teaches and which every Afro-American should ponder well is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. When the white man, who is always the aggressor, knows he runs as great a risk of biting the dust every time his Afro-American victim does, he will have greater respect for Afro-American life. In the 1960s, the right was actually associated with gun control and was involved in passing some gun control measures. Can you speak to why this was and what was happening in that moment? So in the 1960s, you start seeing the rise of the Black Panthers and other groups and more radical voices who believed that nonviolence, which was kind of espoused by Martin Luther King, was only putting more African-Americans at risk. 
And the idea was that when facing real tyranny under Jim Crow, it's better to be armed and able to defend yourself than to just give up. Also at this time, the NRA is a moderate sportsman organization that's definitely more about, you know, the family that goes out shooting in Montana to go beg big game or something like that. They are not thinking about concealed carry. They are not thinking about open carry. This is a different organization. And so in 1967, a group of Black Panthers uh, took to the steps of the California legislature in Sacramento. This is on May 2nd, 1967. They're carrying revolvers, shotguns, and pistols. And they read a statement saying, the time has come for Black people to arm themselves against this terror, the terror of racism, before it's too late. And within two months after that, then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed the Mulford Act, which banned the open carry of loaded weapons. And said he said that guns were a ridiculous way to solve problems that have to be solved among people of goodwill. You also see the same thing in the Gun Control Act of 1968 and that required gun sellers to have a federal license and ban the sale of certain kinds of small guns, small guns being less expensive. And that's kind of an, an interesting side piece to the history of gun laws is that a lot of gun legislation, you know, even in 1930s, which banned the so-called Saturday night special, is all about banning small, cheap guns or trying to limit access to small, cheap guns. Now, I think a lot of people listening would be, you know, that sounds like a good idea. But in this time, we're talking about, you know, making it so that small, cheap guns, if you're an African-American family living in the Jim Crow South, you know, having access to a small gun when you, like my grandmother, my late grandmother did, face the real threat of the Klan, you know, that could be the difference. Right. And so what's so interesting is now, of course, looking at Reagan, he he moved really admirably quickly to impose gun control measures um, at the time. But since then, the terrain has really shifted and the NRA has taken on a very different role. They're no longer really just a sportsman's organization. They have a much more aggressive agenda. And if you, you know, go on YouTube and look at like people talking about uh, Second Amendment rights, you start hearing a lot of references to gangsters, urban types. And so you could easily say, Obviously, the racists are currently on the side of guns. And it, it's interesting, though, I'll, I'll push back a little bit because you start seeing, um, you know, within the white supremacist or white nationalist movement, there very much is a sense that, no, 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 there should be gun control, but only for black people. And what would that and look like? I, I, I do not wish to know. Um, and it, it's very interesting because you see a lot of that same language of, you know, having to be very worried about, you know, having a gun because you need to worry about black people attacking you or something like that. But very much this idea that white people should have guns, but black people should not have guns. I think the NRA has made some efforts to reach out to black gun owners, a, a group that is expanding. But we've seen again and again and again and again that black gun owners, they don't have the same access to, say, standard ground legislation. The Marissa Alexander case, you see that you know, happening time and time again in which African-Americans who do have guns legally right. and who do have, you know, use Philando Castile, for example, you see that gun ownership for African-Americans puts them at risk of death. Whereas gun ownership for white Americans, in many cases, is treated as that's what you're supposed to do, in a sense. There has been the argument, and you refer to this, that 
um, gun control measures um, are enforced more harshly against people of color than against white people. So what sort of evidence do we have for that? What, what does that look like? So discriminatory enforcement in these gun cases, you know, I think that it really goes to how two, set, two people, one African-American, one white, are treated under very similar circumstances. And I think that Stand Your Ground is an excellent example, as is, you know, open carry, as is, you know, our concealed weapons permits, which, you know, for example, in the Flando Castile case, he was licensed to carry a concealed weapon. And that is something police are supposed, you know, when you tell someone that, police are supposed to recognize that as being like, ah, yes, I am prepared for you to be carrying a weapon. And that's clearly not what happened in the Castile case. And I think that it really goes down to, as you said, the unequal interpretation of law that African-Americans who own guns for the exact same reason that their white neighbors and friends might own guns are not treated the same under the exact same laws because of their race. And so in these cases, something like concealed carry, this is a measure that's meant to make it more possible to carry guns. Would people, in fact, be safer if there were fewer guns, period, because it lowers the stakes of encounters with, for example, police, whether they're racist or not? So I personally, I don't think so. I think in general, we start talking about limiting access to something, whatever it is. Um, Whatever we're limiting access to, some people will still be able to access it and some people will not. We see that, for example, with marijuana, that extremely strict enforcement of federal marijuana laws. People still smoke weed. It just who gets caught and who doesn't get caught. Wait, they do? So when we, (laughs) I, I, I have to tell you, they might. They, they just might. Hmm. We'll and talk about so, this later. And so you see that marijuana laws are interpreted, you know, if you have two people, one person who is smoking a joint in their very nice building and they don't get bothered by police, but someone who is carrying half an eighth in their pocket and they happen to be African-American and they get stopped. The enforcement of that law is very different. Regrettably, we do not live in that world of equal enforcement being the general rule. So I think I'm extremely wary of gun restriction efforts because we've seen time and time again that whose guns are going to get restricted and whose guns are not going to is a a very open question. According to your article, uh, Black Americans currently support gun control at higher rates than white Americans. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Has that always been the case? Is that more recent? What's going on there? It's not always been the case, but since the 1970s and since the contributions of white flight, the introductions of crack cocaine, free-based cocaine, um, and the, you know, kind of the explosion of the violence that surrounded uh, the sale and usage of crack cocaine specifically, African-Americans in, who lived in urban centers very understandably wanted to um, limit the number of guns around them. You know, you see in D.C. Um, in 1976, in a 12 to 1 vote uh, by a majority black city council, as D.C. is a majority black city, D.C. banned residents from owning or carrying handguns. And, you know, the NAACP voted to support gun control measures in 1989. 
you know, in 1993, 74% of African-Americans supported gun control. And that was very much of a, you know, a response to very real violence taking place that understandably people were thinking, you know, if we, if there were fewer guns or less access to guns, this wouldn't be happening. Because Black people in America are more likely to be victims of gun violence and less likely to own, right? One of the things that we've been thinking about is there has been this failure of the gun control movement to connect with the people who are disproportionately affected. Do you think the the history of racism in the gun control movement is sort of shaping what the movement looks like today? I think a little bit. I think that African-Americans have about guns are real, but also the wariness they have about the gun control movement as a whole. And also our conversation about guns overall. When the gun control movement is extremely focused on preventing school shootings, school shootings that take place in predominantly, you know, have taken place in predominantly white schools. And it's interesting because, you know, as people have pointed out, school shootings don't generally happen in urban high schools, for example, because urban high schools already have such security theater. And it's been interesting to see people kind of saying, like, why doesn't this large suburban high school also have, you know, everyone has to have a clear backpack and everyone needs to check with a security guard to do everything. The NRA, it's obviously its outreach to African-Americans has not been particularly good. But I also think that people remember, you know, people remember the history of this and also can see that certain victims are discussed ad nauseum and certain victims of gun violence are not. And so I think that for many African-Americans, they're stuck between, you know, a gun control movement that does not embrace them and gun rights organizations that want people to fear them. Both sides, if they were better at this, could really speak to the needs of African-Americans, both African-Americans interested in controlling the number of guns that are around them in their neighborhoods and cities, and also African-Americans who say, you know, I want to own a gun. It's interesting to see these two sides kind of attempting to talk to each other, but over the voices of African-Americans who might otherwise be interested in either side. And there has been the rise, I think, of small organizations that are trying to fill that gap. So you have like the National African-American Gun Association, which I believe is new, and some groups sort of starting to fill that space that you're talking about. That's been something that's interesting to see is the number of small gun, small gun groups focused on African-Americans. I think they're the ones who have been speaking out, especially about these cases of African-Americans who do use guns who are being then railroaded by the law. It's been really interesting to me to see in Parkland, for example, which has been the source of a lot of gun control movement activity, obviously the students coming out and speaking out, that black students at Parkland have actually, they told Vox um, that they were feeling sort of excluded from this conversation because the response to the shooting was to bring in a ton of security to their school, a lot of policing, which actually made them feel less safe. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's important because when we talk about introducing that security theater, again, who is going to be subjected to the to the security theater and who will not be is a, a question up for much debate. Given this history, um, do you see a way in which the gun control movement could proceed in a productive way? I think that the challenge is going to be 
really centering on what what is the goal here? Because I think that there's been a lot of conversation, especially because this tends to happen after something terrible happens, that you know, so a mass shooting takes place and the reaction is, okay, that now is the time, call for gun control, let's do this. But I think that when gun control becomes so focused, one, on issues impacting generally young white people, and not very focused on African-Americans and non-white Americans and their concerns about gun usage that's specific to their communities, I think that that's not the way to go forward. I think that it, you know, there really is a, a moment for recalibration on what are the goals of this movement and what, what are they willing to compromise on? I think that that's an interesting question as well. Jane, thank you so much for joining me. Are you going to be continuing to write about this particular issue? I will be. Um, I've continued to focus on it. It's something I'm interested in. So if people are interested in following along, I I welcome them. All right. We'll see you at Vox.com. Thank you so much. So... The U.S. has a long history of measures designed to keep guns out of the hands of marginalized people, and particularly people of color. And there is a complementary history of communities seeking to arm themselves as a form of defense against the government and the right. This trend has only intensified in recent years. Since Trump's election, we've seen the growth of left-wing, POC, and LGBTQ gun clubs. Jason Christian was a member of one such group nearly a decade ago, and he described his experience in an article for The New Republic earlier this year titled Confessions of a Former Left-Wing Gun Nut. He's now a writer and graduate student at Louisiana State University. Jason joins me on the line from New Orleans. Hi, Sarah. Good to be with you. Quickly, can you take me from your first gun to your last gun? I got my first gun when I was five. Um, it's a chipmunk, um, little rifle marketed for children. And I was raised around hunters. So I, I had about five guns by the time I was 12. In Oklahoma, right? In Oklahoma. Yeah. Rural Oklahoma, east of Oklahoma city. I did target practicing all the time. I went to turkey shoots and I hunted. So I had rifles and shotguns and, and later handguns, um, but then I kind of got into liberal politics and punk rock culture, and I sort of swore off all of that stuff and didn't touch a gun for several years until quite a ways into getting really radicalized, becoming an anarchist. And then I sort of got my guns out of the closet, started target practicing again, and then bought an AK-47 and some other guns. And that's and then I got disillusioned with all of that and kind of put them back in the closet, sold off the AK-47. So that's sort of the quick, quick version. I want to dig into your period in a sort of left-wing gun group. Um, And can you talk to me a little bit about what the ideology was behind that? Yeah, so I didn't want to indicate that I was in a militia in the article because I wasn't in in a militia per se, but... In my 20s, I got really persuaded by anarchist politics, and I started digging into the history of anarchism. And, you know, there's a long, crazy history of struggles from uprisings in Russia and 
Barcelona in 1936. And there was a lot of armed conflicts and a lot of insurrectionary conflicts throughout the history of the anarchist struggle. And that history appealed to me and it appealed to a lot of my friends. So we just kind of devoured pamphlets and magazines and books and and films and documentaries. Right. And tell me sort of, you know, you weren't in Barcelona in the 30s. So what about the situation in the United States seemed to demand this particular kind of engagement with guns? And what story were you telling yourself about the need for guns at this particular moment? Well, I should say real quickly, I actually moved to Barcelona and lived in anarchist squats for about four years. Um, And I moved back in 07. And I linked up with some other anarchists in Lawrence, Kansas, who had been doing tactical training. And their view was that guns are a safeguard against right-wing militias, and they're sort of a safeguard in, in case the state starts to wither or be toppled. And the thinking is that there's going to be a power vacuum and that the left wing has to be able to step in there to, you know, if, if there's an insurrection uh, on the right, or if there's the state begins to falter. So it's, you know, it's a very lofty and it's a very extremist uh, perspective. What does a day of training look like? We, we weren't super organized. We were reading a lot of theory and a lot of like tactical manuals. Um, we would go out to the country and target practice. And I, we, we did try to table at a gun show so I, I described that in the article. We, we went to a gun show in Oklahoma City and we placed an AK-47 on the table and we had a bunch of ultra-left, um, like guerrilla warfare material and insurrectionary theory and tactical training stuff, uh, but all from the left-wing perspective on the table. And we ended up getting into some arguments with like right-wing militia types and got thrown out. Uh, but we were trying, we thought we would try to recruit. The people in Lawrence, they actually had done that a lot. They were doing a lot more training. They were doing gun, uh, gun show tabling all the time. And that's sort of who I was inspired by, me and a few of my friends. Did you have any more concrete scenario in mind of what you expected to be confronting or how you expected to use guns? Or not really? There was a feeling that oil was was going to run out that 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 could cause widespread chaos and that essentially we were thinking you know um if the state decides to declare martial law you're going to have to have like safe places to go what i was doing was very similar to what the preppers do so they they start locating where are the grain silos nearby where are the places where you can hide things where are the um who has family land and and what kind of resources do they have? I mean, there, <laughs> it is crazy because I was reading some like right wing um, material too. Like they're talking about get to know some Mormons because they store food. I mean, it's it's it is really crazy. Like I'm embarrassed at this point to even admit a lot of this stuff because it's largely a fantasy. Um, is how I feel about it now. What ultimately made you disillusioned? I started questioning some of that stuff, like how imminent is a revolution? How much of this is us feeding off of each other? And I became pretty disillusioned with the subculture, not necessarily the politics, but the subculture surrounding the politics. Um, There was a lot of 
kind of absurd grandstanding and posturing that rubbed me the wrong way, and including myself, I was doing that. Um, I started questioning the philosophical underpinnings beneath the idea. Like, you know, this we're not in Algeria in 1955. This wasn't a res- revolutionary situation at all. Uh, once I had a bit of distance, I, I had to admit, like, we're not, conditions are not ripe for a, a revolution. They're, they just weren't, you know. I guess what my view on, or my view on what was possible changed. And then if something didn't seem possible anymore, meaning widespread social revolution, then I had to ask, what should I be doing? What could I better do with my time? When you were involved in this, Obama was president. When Trump was elected, I think there was a widespread feeling of panic and apocalypse among a lot of people. And it seems to me that there's been a bit of a renaissance in left-wing gun culture since the election with the growth of the Redneck Revolt Network, John Brown Gun Clubs, basically left-wing gun clubs. And so I was sort of curious what you make of that. I, I totally understand that urgency. I mean, I was terrified when Trump was elected. I'm still pretty terrified. Um, I understand the impulse that... You know, a big part of what Redneck Revolt uh, advocates for is community defense. And I think that's a good idea. I think communities do need to be defended. Um, they they want to do what they call counter-recruitment. I, again, think that's a good idea. They want to pluck people away from white nationalist movements. I just don't agree with it revolving around guns. Um, that's, that's where I take issue with it. It's a uh, kind of foolhardy, as I was describing what I was doing, it's kind of foolhardy that you stand a chance to A, take on right-wing militias or or the state. And I also think it's a provocation, or it could be seen as a provocation. I, I feel like, say, at Charlottesville, if you have a, a gathering of ultra-right fascist people with guns, and then you come in there with guns, it you're liable to tempt them to open fire. It seems like an escalation rather than a a de-escalation kind of thing. And so you don't think part of um, counter-recruitment and meeting people where they're at would necessarily involve guns? Because I assume that's sort of the theory. Yeah, I I would think that you would show them another model. Like for me, you... Why show them the same signifiers? Why show up dressed almost identically, carrying the same weapons, doing the same kind of posturing and grandstanding? Why not show them another model and make it around, I don't know, meaningful employment or organizing the workplace or health issues or growing food or something else? I, I take issue with gun culture in general. I, I don't like guns anymore. Um, I don't have a problem with sports shooting and hunting, but personally, I, I'm really wary of gun culture because it kind of creates this mentality that you're, you're ready to use it at a moment's notice. It kind of keeps you on guard. It kind of keeps you on high alert. I don't like what it does to people's mentality. I want to dig into this mentality you're talking about and why guns might be an appealing form of outreach, essentially. 
after the election, you know, when everyone was feeling pretty freaked out, I went and learned to shoot in part because I didn't like that only the right was parading around doing open carry demonstrations. And I don't come from gun country and they seem mysterious to me. And I wanted to take away that sort of fear that comes with not really understanding something. And what I found in my experience was just, of course, you feel different holding a gun. (laughs) You feel more powerful. It's exciting. It's a gun. So I think that this, there are a lot of effects to having a firearm that are less strictly political and have a lot to do with how you feel. I was wondering if you could sort of speak to that. When I wrote that, that piece, I borrowed a phrase from a podcast that Ezra Klein was speaking with an author about gun culture, and they talked about this feeling of essentialness. And I, I like that phrase because once you are armed, like, so to speak, with a noble cause, and you know you're right, you know that it's not okay that there's right-wing people attacking Muslims and people of color, and and you know that there's this opposition out there that's blatantly horrific and wrong. And then you sort of bring in um, some sort of revolutionary perspective, or just the idea that if no one does this, I have to do it. You, You place yourself into this essential role of not only defending yourself and your friends, but perhaps being an agent of history and and taking on these things, I felt like I was part of, um, you know, the same people who fought nobly against the fascists in Spain in 1936. A big part of what you're arguing is that this is actually not an effective way to build power or or move politics. There is obviously this sort of racist history of gun control, which doesn't get talked about a lot. But Reagan, of of course, pushed gun control as governor of California after the Black Panthers demonstrated openly carrying firearms. And it seems like carrying guns actually did represent power to somebody because it freaked people out. I wonder, you know, is there a way in which guns can represent some power for marginalized groups in a way that matters. Yeah, I mean, I would never want to speak for marginalized groups that I don't belong to. And and I think, obviously, I, I mean, the Black Panthers were my heroes and still are. Um, I understand that, I mean, we also have to remember that that was a time of incredible social upheaval. There were bombings every day. I mean, there were thousands of bombings. There were shootouts with the police. Uh, again, conditions are different now. Obviously, that people of color are targeted by the police, but it's a different situation. You don't have outright assassinations happening. You don't have people putting bombs at the Pentagon like the Weather Underground did. It, we had this incredible moment that was potentially revolutionary, looking back, but didn't, didn't end up being. So I, I feel like the conditions are different now. So I don't actually, I don't want to speak for anyone, but, and I don't want to condemn anyone. I, I, I wouldn't condemn the redneck revolt because I think they have good intentions. I just think it's not the if, most effective way to organize for social change. Do you stay in touch with people from uh, your gun days? Um, a very few. Um, I got a 
few angry texts after I wrote that. The, the people who started Redneck Revolt, I haven't, I've lost touch with. Um, I'm sure they got a hold of it and read it and probably cursed me. Um, but I did get some angry texts from a friend who thought that I betrayed them. But I, I think that they missed the point that I was just, it was a cautionary position, not a condemnation. Uh, but I don't stay in touch with a lot of people, just a few from that time. Jason, I want to really thank you for joining us and sort of hashing out this issue. Yeah, no, it was fun. Um, I enjoyed it. The class and race politics around controlling these weapons are enormously fraught, something that will have to be addressed seriously in the burgeoning gun control movement. That's it for this week's show. Let us know what you think about guns and gun control at what's left at buzzfeed.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We put out new episodes every Monday. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and it helps people learn about the show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bauza, Cece Allen, and Jake Bunger. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. See you next week where we'll discuss what's left.